Amin Hassan, Yoko So, I'm Wea Bro Derek. Hi, I'm Wea Bro Sean. And this is the Wea Bros Anime Podcast. I have been so tired all day today. Do you know why? You do know why, because we talked about this before the show. But uh, for rhetorical purposes, do you know why? Yeah, you're hungover as shit. <laughs> so yesterday was my birthday. I had some friends come from out of town for the weekend, and it was a good time. We went hiking, and uh, well, in the most cinematically ironic instance I think I've ever seen in my life, one of my friends rolled his ankle on the last eighth of the trip. We had made it to the top of the falls. We had made it all the way down from said falls, and we were on a narrow path we really didn't have to take to get back, but we were approaching the finish. We were within an eighth of the way back, and uh, he turns to me, and he's like, man, I'm pretty top-heavy, yada, 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 yada. <laughs> and no more than a minute, within a minute after he says that, he slips on the edge after the ground gives out and injures his freaking foot. Wow. That's great. <laughs> he rolled his ankle. You know how, like, in the movies, there's always the cop that's two weeks from retirement and says that and then gets shot or whatever? This was our hiking equivalent to that. The last leg of the hike, me and the one of the other guys had to help him limp along because he rolled his ankle. And he's a pretty large fellow. There's a lot of weight that came down when he slipped the way he did. And uh, eventually we get back to the vehicle. But he can't walk or do much of anything at this point. We've got to go buy him an ice pack, some an ankle brace he's hopped up on painkillers so the four of us go back to my place and we drink and play games all night and yeah i think i was a little hungover for much of the day today i only started to feel alive again like maybe an hour or so ago but uh happy birthday to me happy 20 25 years old yeah huh what what is this girls you didn't have to do this for me a cake and everything are you sure uh, well, if you insist. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to At any rate, we have official confirmation from Studio Bones that the second season of Mob Psycho 100 will air starting in January of next year. Sean, I don't remember. Have you seen that one or not? No, I haven't. Well, it was created by the same guy who made One Punch Man. The guy's name is One. That's his pen name, obviously. <laughs> I don't know his actual name, but uh, that's his pen name. And now, of course, Madhouse produced One Punch Man. Bones has had Mob Psycho 100. Uh, but you can almost immediately tell that it's from the same guy, same creator. The character design and humor are pretty similar, similar to how you know, like, Matt... Uh, Greening was the main guy behind The Simpsons and Futurama. They have different feels, but you can tell by looking at them, this is the same person who created these. Same kind of thing with Mob Psycho and One Punch Man. And Mob Psycho and I would say Konosuba were probably the two biggest sleeper hits of 2016, at least winter 2016. So many, myself included, are looking forward to this second season of Mob Psycho 100. So you've seen the first season? Yes. Oh, I need to catch up on it then. Because if you're going to watch the second season, i got to watch it too. That'd be ideal. 
and it's not long. I think it's only like 12 or 13 episodes. It's another short one. Also worth noting, uh, last week I kind of lamented a little bit about my anime list ratings and how they're skewed by people who've given ratings before they've seen a whole series. Well, I checked again a few days ago. It seems like order is being restored now that uh, Darling in the Franks is over. It was hanging out well above 8 before it ended. Now, some days after it's ended, it's dropped to an average of 7.89. I still think that's a little high, but for an aggregate number, being near 8 but below it seems like a much more balanced average that I would expect from this series than the score that we saw while it was ongoing. I'd say it needs to drop quite a bit more than that. I don't think it will, but I find it more acceptable more palatable that it's a 7.89 as opposed to like an 8.5 or something that it was when I had checked in the middle of the season while it was ongoing. Yeah, that's bordering greatest of all time once you get up and into the 8.5 to 9, and it's nowhere nowhere even near. Well, I did look, too, uh, just to see if Steinsgate had changed at all from what you said, and Steinsgate 0 is still above a 9. So we'll see if that changes again by the end of it. If the trend holds, it will somewhat balance itself out. And we don't know technically how it's going to end yet. It could redeem itself for us. But right now, if I were to rate the series today, it would certainly not be a nine, not anywhere close to it. Yeah, me neither. Probably a six. Also, before we get into the week in review here, I just want to say to everyone out there that Chio's School Road is a comedy you should probably be watching this season. I also really do like Cells on Work, as I've said, but last week I mentioned that I thought the first episode of Chio's was really good and that it had some potential. I think the second episode was great. It consists of three shorts, basically, that again all involve the main character going to school in the morning, but the absurdist and circumstantial humor is on point with this. And I even texted you about it, Sean, after I watched that second episode. Did you get around to starting that one or no? Yes, I've seen the first episode. I have not seen the second. You know, the first episode's great, too. She goes all Assassin's Creed, uh, <laughs> trying to get to school. It's 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 cute. If I you're a it. video game nerd, I think there's a certain type of humor that it appeals. It references a lot of video game stuff throughout, but also just from a general humor like standpoint, this is a very good series. And I think, Sean, you will find that the second episode is much better even than that first one. Much better. Wow. Yes. That's, that's a tall order to beat the first one. I really like the first one. I expect a text after you watch it with your thoughts, is what I'm saying here. All right, I can do that. One series in the Week in Review this week. We'll start with our first recap. We'll start and finish, I guess, with our first recap. First impressions of Overlord 3, Episode 1, A Ruler's Melancholy. We begin our third season in Nazarick, following that crazy battle at the end of the second season in which Ainz actually fights the devil dude, was Demi-Urg, Demi-Urge, whatever his name is. Everyone involved has gotten all the information and stuff they were looking for, and now... Ainz is rewarding them. Sebus, who was the butler guy, wants more clothes and stuff for Tuari, who was the girl he saved from the brink of death last season while he was in Riestiz, I think was the name of the city. You may recall he single-handedly took down a human trafficking ring. Meanwhile, Solution, who was the scary maid chick, also uh, she was conducting renaissance as well with Cebus, asks for some innocent humans as reimbursement for her deeds done. Ainz won't grant her the innocent ones like she requested, but she still seems grateful for the time being at least. Sean, do you see her becoming an enemy at some point in this season? Possibly. What does she need innocent people for? 
she's clearly a, a creature of some kind that eats people. They established last season when in her interactions with Seabus as they were hanging out in this mansion thing in the one city trying to collect information that she's fairly sinister and she does not view humans as worth much. She enjoys eating them and killing them and all that jazz. She's an inhuman entity. Whereas Cebus often wanted to help the weak, like he did with this one girl he rescued from the human trafficking ring. Solution, not so much here. Anyway, this episode focuses on Ein's kind of getting caught in the struggle between being Ein Zulgaun, the undead king of Nazarick, and his actual human self, which resides within the body, which is much more lame. There's also his hero persona, the Black Knight, I think Momon, Momonga, whatever. He's worried that all his NPCs don't get enough time to relax, so he orders them to take time off together. And from this, we get some mildly comical moments, interactions between the one, uh, his one main assistant, Arubedo is her name, and then Shaltir, which is the vampire chick. They're both fighting over Ainzulgaon's attention. It uh, turns out that uh, Arubedo can't ride her bicorn, which is a dual-horned unicorn, if you were wondering, because she's a, quote, pure maiden, and opposite of unicorns, bicorns require someone a little more seasoned in order to be ridden. The humor in this is she's a succubus who hasn't been with any dudes. Yep, and then... We find out Shaltier has only been with other chicks. That was pretty funny, too. <laughs> but this sets up the Haram-esque love triangle side story for oh. this season. And they, they've done this with the first two seasons, actually. And I feel they've kind of amped up the lewdness as of late in this series. Uh, but it's always had this component, at least this little triangle between the vampire and the succubus and our undead king. And they've added some other characters that are kind of into him as well. There's that one short girl at the end of the second season. But the main Haram-esque okay, comedy crazy. revolves around those three. And that's how they've set it up for this season. Because now, Alubedo, Alubed, whatever her name is. Uh, Albedo. She's obviously more inclined to want to get with him now for the sake of even riding her bicorn. And of course, we can expect him to struggle to ward off her advances. And this is because, one, he's kind of lame to begin with. But two, he also actually feels guilty. Back at the start of the original season, he went in and seeing as it was the last day the game was going to be online, he changed her programming. Of course, he did not realize or anticipate that he would be trapped in this game after the servers went online, but he converted her to be madly obsessively in love with him. Also, he has that passive ability that triggers to keep his emotions in check all the time, so I'm not sure if he can actually get excited enough to willingly bone her, but that's another thing. Uh, and there are some pretty funny scenes about that, though, actually, toward the end of the episode. Yeah, Albedo finally jumps his bones literally she jumps on him <laughs> and tries to get with him but he wasn't having any of he resisted but i don't know how successful that was because she murdered all of his little spider guard things and so it was a very funny moment there were some good comedic moments here but the sexual humor was probably the main pull of this episode wouldn't you say totally even uh demiurge he is he's trying to breed humans with other animals like he's forcing them did you catch up yeah, on that? Yeah, I did see that line, and I thought that was an interesting development. For some of these characters, more so humans are just playthings or experimental objects, but of course, Eins is now 
tasked with balancing his inhuman king persona and all of his inhuman NPCs that he created that are crazy strong and many of whom don't really have a whole lot of respect for humanity with his actual human self and his hero ego that is an ally to humanity, his Black Knight persona, Momon. Uh, it was good to see the lizard men back after taking like four episodes in season two to get through their arc last season. They pretty much disappeared, but they're back now and they're teaching the hamster how to like fight. My hope is that now we can get the ball rolling. And at the very end, we've got our male and female characters in two separate bathhouses that are situated right next to each other and we get commotion going on on the female side and there's mention of a summon from what Momongo recognizes was one of the original players that played the game with him long ago. I'm wondering if that's a hint at another player character or if it's just something left behind that that individual built into Nazarick like as a defense system or something. I believe he uh, he heard his friend's voice, right? So I'm pretty sure it's got to be another actual human player. Well, there's something that remarks about the indecency of the conversation or whatever that's going on on the female side of things. But I wasn't sure if that was another player character or not. Regardless, our episode ends with the male characters getting ready to enter the female bathhouse to assist them in fighting this golem thing. I hope it is another, like, actual human, because I want to learn more about... We've never seen his human, his actual self, and I kind of want him to elaborate on that a little bit more. And I don't know if they will, but I think Overlord is the king of the isekai genre right now. It's by far the strongest series. I didn't care much for the animation. It's not bad, but I know Madhouse and Madbox, which is their little 3D computer graphics subset, can do better. I didn't think it was that great overall last season either. There are moments where it's pretty blatant computer animation, and it looks kind of cheap relative to the rest of it, don't you think? Yeah, it does. It stands out every time they use it. And it's not bad, but with a bigger budget production like this now in its third season, I would just expect a little more. When you get things that are in their third season, they're popular enough to get that funding. And some of it, too, is they've been pumping these seasons out pretty quickly. Season two ended, and within six months, they were up to... We watched it, and what, it was last fall, wasn't it, that the second season ran? And they had already announced that by summer of the following year, they would have season three. So maybe they were already planning on just churning it out. But when you get to your season threes, things are typically pretty well animated. They've got a lot of money behind them. You look at My Hero Academia. You look at Attack on Titan coming out. Two series that have big blockbuster animation budgets. It seems like Overlord is kind of lagging behind in that. But overall, still excited for the start of this series. I'm just hoping that they really get going with it now that they've spent so much time establishing things. And in their first episode, they reestablish things in case you've forgotten. We re-meet all of our characters again. We understand what their shticks are, their quirks, what motivates them. Yeah, I, I don't see them stalling. I, I think they're going to get right on it. Episode two is going to be action-packed <laughs> in the bathhouse action-packed with possible nudity and violence and isn't that really all you need in in a series that's all i care about <laughs> nudity and violence that's all i want to see now last week somewhere in the middle of the show we mentioned that there would be a break in steins gate zero this week 
by the end of the show, I completely forgot that. But in the absence of Steins Gate Zero this week, we decided to make an impromptu Vault of Series past venture and watch a different time travel story. I'm talking about Madhouse's 2006 movie adaptation of The Girl Who Leapt Through Time. The story follows a high school girl by the name of Makoto. She accidentally ends up acquiring the ability to jump back in time. At first, it's all fun and games going back to avoid certain unlucky things that happened to her earlier in the week, but she slowly learns that going back and messing with things can lead to unforeseen consequences. What we've really got here, though, is more of a sci-fi romance story, isn't it? I thought it was a a cute love story. It it doesn't start as a love story, I guess. It it actually kind of ends up being a love story nearly towards the end of the movie. Mm Mm-hmm. So apparently there's, there's, uh, man, I don't even know if I want to spoil it. This happens a lot where I don't want to spoil the show. You've got to get better at being vaguely specific. Yeah, I know. Uh, yeah, the time travel aspect, she can leap through time. She doesn't have a time machine. She starts leaping through time and she doesn't know why. And then she gets this mysterious number imprint on her arm that keeps going down and down every time she leaps. So it's not exactly like Steinsky, but it's pretty similar to it. Um, A lot of very similar themes with time travel having consequences. And this show came out five years before the first Steingate did. It came out in 2006. Yeah, very similar in that we're toying around with the idea of the butterfly effect of a character going back and trying to change things and having to deal with unforeseen consequences that result from those changes made. Now, this story, not exactly like Steins Gate, even from a time travel perspective. In Steins Gate, we've got Okabe, like you were saying, using a machine, but he's hopping different world lines trying to prevent things that are happening in the future. In this story, we've got Makoto, who is going back sometimes a few hours, sometimes a few days in time to change events that have already happened to her in the same timeline. And it is definitely a drama, but you don't really know what kind of drama until maybe that final third of the series and it ends as a romance story. And for the sake of not divulging any spoilers, we can probably leave it at that. But generally speaking, narrative-wise, in an hour and 40 minutes, I think we get more out of The Girl Who Leapt Through Time than we did out of Darling and the Franks, and then what we've gotten so far out of Steins Gate Zero. And typically, I am a fan of shorter shows. I like my seasons to be 12 to 13 episodes. I like my movies to be under two hours. That said, this one coming in at 140, there were a couple things, some story elements that I thought could have been more specifically explained, things that I felt were a little confusing, particularly toward the end. And in a case like that, I would have probably liked another 10 to 15 minutes of just stuff explaining how the time travel and such works. But overall, it didn't really diminish the story that much. I felt the same way at the end. I wish they kind of wrapped the story up a little better. Mm -hmm. Like, I was watching the credits, like, hoping there was something at the end (laughs) where they kind of recap. I did the same thing. And we will talk about this after the show because I don't want to give away any spoilers. But I do have some thoughts on that. Um, Also... 
The character animation looks like your typical early 2000s stuff, but uh, I thought the backgrounds were beautifully painted, uh, and the surroundings were probably the most visually striking part of the artwork here for me. I'm in no way an expert on animation or anything, but just from what I've picked up over the years, I like that early 2000s style because you can clearly see that it's that late transitional phase from the gritty, rough, hand-drawn 90s look to the more pristine, computer-aided animation we see today. Some of the big league studios had begun experimenting with computer-enhanced production in the late 90s. Studio Ghibli was doing mixed-cell stuff with Princess Mononoke in 97. Then in the 2000s, most studios had begun embracing the use of computer-generated images. Not too long after that, just about everyone had converted to digital. In many ways, though, finding that proper balance was still a work in progress. They're still drawing just about everything, but we're seeing computer-generated enhanced effects, basically. And from what I understand, like I was saying to this day, most of your early production stuff, your keyframe in-between animation, that's all still hand-drawn by the studios that have the manpower and resources to do it. And it's that balance of hand-drawn animation and computer enhancement and CGI that gives anime its unique look and feel. And I felt that this one was actually a pretty good balance for the time. You're looking at 2006, and so they haven't quite figured out how exactly they were going to do the computer stuff versus the hand-drawn stuff. And some of the hand-drawn stuff was even done on computer, but I, the backgrounds look beautifully hand-painted. And the main thing in this, what they're using the 3D CGI for is certain scene moments like the time hop scenes the rest of it i still think particularly that scenery looks pretty good doesn't it yeah you know, even the dis the the design of it is just it's just great let alone the execution like the just the how everything looks the places <laughs> the places are nice <laughs> sorry i don't know i didn't get to work out so my blood's not pumping my brain's not flowing correctly <laughs> But no, that, that blending, that type of animation combination is why something like, say, 2016's Berserk looks so ugly and strange. It's because it's virtually all 3D CGI. But something, <laughs> but, but something like Fate Zero, which came out in 2011, 2012, looks so dang good. It's blended together well. And just about every studio does this nowadays, and if they don't, you can tell because it looks more like a DreamWorks or a Pixar movie. I don't know if you drew the same parallel. Probably not, but I thought this movie, the animation looked a lot like Devilman Crybaby. Like the um, the people, they looked mm -hmm. like they, they were drawn exactly the same. It was thing. simpler is what it was, and that's an so, early 2000s thing. In the 2000s, even in the 90s, you can tell hu like, human characters, people were just drawn differently. And you'll see that even, if, let's look at Megalobox, a fairly recent example. Again, a very good example of blending CG stuff with that actual hand-drawn aesthetic. We get the CG enhancement for certain shots or scenes where they feel they need to, but other than that, it's got that legit hand-drawn look to it. And even the human characters, you can see the character designs in that look different from what we see in anime that comes out now in 2018. And that's just a product of what was in at the time. Do you think anime has gotten a lot more popular since then? Since, I mean, like exponentially more 
I would say it's definitely become more popular. I don't know if it's been exponentially more popular, but I think the introduction of different streaming services and accessibility has been a huge part in that. Also, the fact that more series are being dubbed now as much as we don't like particularly hearing the dubs, it does help make things more popular because there are a lot of people who just simply don't like reading subtitles while they're watching a film or a series. It's a price I am willing to pay though when it comes to having it become more popular and such. And you know, there's just more money in it now too, I think, and the technology is better. And so that's why we get prettier series. And not every series that comes out today looks stellar. And they're not all going for the Violet Evergarden look, clearly aiming to knock it out of the park with the visuals. Uh, making an abrupt jump now back to the 3D computer CGI stuff, one series that's going on this season that more heavily emphasizes that kind of look is High Score Girl. I'm not actually watching that one, though. After watching uh, Violet Evergarden, uh, I'm a little spoiled with just how good that show looked going back even to Overlord, which still looks damn good. It's just not even anywhere, not even close to how good Violet Evergarden looked. Yeah, and that's why you almost have to judge by what you feel they're going for. Dropkick on My Devil looks good for what it is. I've been watching that one this season, and they're not aiming to knock it out of the park in visuals. They've got a certain aesthetic they're going for, and how well do they fit it is the question. Just like Devilman Crybaby came out this past winter, it looks ugly relative to most of the, the other big anime out there. And it is, but it's by design. It's got a very surreal look, and that's deliberate. And so... You have to say that it's different, but you wouldn't necessarily, or at least I didn't really knock it for it because I realized that that's the look they were going for. Now contrast that to something like Record of Grand Crest War. They were aiming to be grandiose and beautiful and they did it maybe half the time. You know, and so that's when we, you get the feeling this is what they were going for. Did they make it work? Eh, sort of. I'll tell you though, getting back to the girl who leapt through time, if you're looking to fill the time travel void left by Steins Gate Zero this week, I see no reason why you shouldn't consider The Girl Who Leapt Through Time. At only an hour and 40 minutes, there's a fairly minimal time cost associated with it, and I do think it is a pretty good show overall. My final opinion, I think this would be a great movie to introduce someone into anime oh, with. Yeah? Maybe possibly a, a love interest. I think that'd be a good date movie. Because of the uh, romantic component to it? Yep. And it's not, you know, there's nothing lewd, nothing that would turn off a new viewer. I think it would be a perfect first stepping stone into anime. It used to be available on Netflix, but it isn't now because Netflix changes things up like every month. Crunchyroll and Verve appear to have the dubbed version available, but if you're like us and you would much rather watch the subbed version here in the States, your options are to rent it for a few bucks on Amazon Video or obtain it through other legally ambiguous means. But overall rating for... Oh! Sorry. You okay over broke, there? I just broke something. Sorry. What'd you break? I'm playing with a tripod oh never mind it's fine i was playing with a tripod sorry sorry um i forget i don't even know where were we anyway yeah where, final, you final rating about, yeah final yeah. rating for the girl who leapt through time i would say this is probably in the the pretty good to very good category for me i am super backlogged on all my reviews i've still got a 
officially write my darling in the franks one i've got to write like two or three of a megalo box this will be added to that list as well but for an unofficial score here i thought the story was okay maybe a little confusing more than it had to be at the end more open than it had to be at the end is the best way to put it the animation it looks like that early 2000s style very good though nonetheless the animation it looks like that early 2000s style again coming from 2006 music and sound passes inspection overall probably a 7.5 or an 8. i was gonna go with a 7. it doesn't really stand out to me it's not like a hall of famer i just can't rate it that high but i did enjoy it and sean will add qualifier possibly one to get a romantic interest into anime with and that'll do it for this episode next week we have a moderately large announcement to make in regards to the podcast and blog site we're also back to steins gate zero overlord three and much much more uh, it might well actually it will likely be another delayed release i apologize everyone i know we've had a couple of those now but i will be out of town we'll try to make it work uh, until then though i'll say goodbye for now thanks for listening everyone see ya. 